Would you turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2? We read verses 1 to 10. chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 and you he made alive who were dead in in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom, whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For a grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Our dear God and Heavenly Father, as you come now to study your word, we pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would be upon each one of us, upon our hearts, Lord, to bring application and understanding of this word to you. Lord Father, we pray that the meditations of our heart And the words of my mouth might be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You notice I didn't have a kid's talk. There ain't any kids here. Um, The deans are all sick. The Ashburys are at the Berean Bible Church this morning. So no kids, no kids talk. So I apologise to Amelia and Orion. But I was going to talk to them about farming. And I had a little demonstration for them, which I'll leave for another day. But it was interesting that... In the church at, at, uh, at um, Wangaratta, we had a farmer, the Hendy family, of course, a lovely Christian family, and I had a long talk with them about uh, uh, the work of the farm. And it led me to, under- to think about this topic. Do we underestimate the impact of faith on our lives? Um, do we really understand how faith affects our lives? And I've used this example of farming as an example of faith. You know, okay, Chris, what are you talking about? And he said to me, you must have an unwavering commitment to the harvest. It's the way of a life, of life, a lifetime commitment. It's not a typical job, he said, where you can give four weeks' notice and walk away. When you farm, you're actually connected to the land, the, the land. And you've invested in expensive equipment. And I had one example of that where he bought, he bought a sprayer with arms on it. $85,000. That's back in the 1990s. $85,000 just for that. Expensive. And often there's a commitment to previous generations of your family who have farmed before you. And that was the case with, with Jeff and Penny. This big picture then is this. A farmer is committed to his work for a lifetime. And he works the land, and with the yearly harvest, ever his, his uh, uh, goal before him. Every investment in equipment, 
every decision regarding the precise planting time, every weed, weed uprooted is all done with a harvest in mind. And it reminded me that we too have a lifelong commitment to the harvest. The lifetime commitment is played out in everyday acts of our devotion. It's a lifetime commitment, entails hard and unrelenting hard work with brief moments of harvest. You know, as an early Christian, I used to believe the opposite about the Christian life. That short-term hard work will produce an unending harvest. But scripture never portrays the Christian life in this way. Instant growth, instant fruit, instant reward can never be the goal. I believe the goal is a rather a steady pace over a long haul. And the farmer lives and works by faith. Farming is a back-breaking work. It's a dirty work. It's a detailed work. And most of all, it is risky work. There aren't any guarantees. I remember Jeff saying that sometimes, because they're on irrigation in the Murray River, that sometimes they get I call at 3am in the morning and say, your water allocation is there, go and take it up. So they out they go along the banks and lift up their, their chute for their water allocation, 3am in the morning. They're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's commitment. That's commitment. And my friend also, Jeff also reminded me that when one of his crops stood beautiful and bountiful in the field, he used to have wheat and barley and other things, a large thunderstorm came through, blew across his farm and wiped out the crop entirely. No crop at all. After months, dirty, hard, back-breaking work. Brothers and sisters, that's faith in God. All that labour, all that dirt, everything invested for nothing. We might ask us this, thinking of our own lives and our own efforts, to produce a spiritual harvest have seemingly harvested nothing, been wiped out eternally, entirely. The farmer looks ahead at his failed, at his failed cross, crop as a tangible rem reminder that it, uh, um, if inevitably the harvest is dependent upon the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ said, the harvest is great and the labourers are few. So that's our, that's our incentive to go out and be a harvester, a farmer. The farmer must be faithful to lay the groundwork for the harvest, for the harvest cannot be forced. It can only happen through the Lord's providence. What a way to learn that, to put all that work in and then see the, the crop wiped out. Yes, they used to have wonderful crops, things that needed to be brought in all the time. But Jeff and Penny were faithful they never cropped on a Sunday. They were dependent on the Lord's providence. You know, in the last, as we see there, at the last minute, the weather can change and things change completely. If I ask you to define faith, you'd probably say, well, Chris, ask me something simple, something simpler. I've got that covered. You know, one of my dearest verses in Scripture, and you all know this from what I've said, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
the evidence of things not seen. Faith. Is, and or trusting something you cannot explicitly prove. But faith brings substance to our, our beliefs. It's an evidence of things not seen, like we're seeing in Revelation. We're seeing what's going to come for us, held by faith. And similarly in Hebrews, we see in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11.6, but without, without faith, it's impossible to please him, that's God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Of course, my top argument for faith would be, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. However, do we really understand the power of faith, its far-reaching effects and its impact on our lives? How does faith affect your everyday lives? You get in the car and you drive in faith. You don't know whether you're going to make the destination or not, but you still go. We have faith in food that we buy, grown by strangers that it's not harmful, yet we eat it. You have faith that the doctors you see are competent. You put yourself in their hands. If we did not have faith, we wouldn't trust anybody else. We wouldn't be able to drive. We wouldn't be able to eat. We wouldn't be able to get help in times of sickness. Our lives would be very difficult. Remembering this, perhaps you may be tempted to think that you can save by your many good works. Because I'm just talking about faith there in good works. You drive the car. You go to the doctor. That's your work. In this time here in Ephesians, a group of people known as the Judaizers opposed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. They told the Gentile converts to Christianity <coughs> that they must observe all of the Jewish law, circumcision, dietary requirements, and all their many other rules and laws. But Paul said, no, that's wrong. Salvation comes through faith in Christ and not by observing the Jewish law. Paul's teaching has sometimes been interpreted as meaning that if we have faith, nothing else matters. In other words, we don't need to repent of sin. We don't need to do any good works like obeying God's commands or helping other people. But that was not Paul's interpretation at all. He said, if the spirit of Christ is truly in us, within us, we will turn away from, uh, uh, from evil deeds. <clears throat> and thinking about October, what do I think about in October? The 31st of October, Reformation Day. 505 years ago, Martin Luther, irritated by Johann Tetzel, a Dominican friar, he preached the faithfulness to the faithful that the purchase of a letter of indulgence lessened a person's time in purgatory and helped them to get, out, to, get to heaven faster. Martin Luther, from his study of Scripture, knew that good works of giving of money or indulgence from the, to the Church of Rome does not have the power to forgive people. He said, you can be justified. You don't, you, Luther, Luther taught, you, you can be, instead he taught that you can be justified, made acceptable to God, only by faith, not by paying for indulgences. So my first point this morning is, therefore, I believe we can underestimate the operation of faith. I'd like us to begin by understanding that we have a twofold nature, a spiritual nature, often referred to as, referred to as a soul or carnal nature, and often referred to as flesh, an, out, an outward man. And Paul refers to this, and he says in 2 Corinthians, 
even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. There's two, two natures here. Galatians 5, 17, as we read, there's a war going on between these two natures. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another so that you do not, know, do, not do the things that you wish. So consider firstly then that this spiritual or new inner man becomes what he is. It's obvious there is no external influence that can produce righteousness or unrighteousness. Because Paul's already said in Romans, all have sinned, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. How can the soul prosper then when we eat and drink and do as we please? Or will poor health or hunger or some other misfortune harm the soul? Nor does prayers or meditations, attending a church or studies and other activities that is, external actions, can be, can be done by the body and in the body to assist the soul to be saved. All these works can be done by an unbeliever. And as Jesus pointed out to the scribes and the Pharisees, this produced hypocrites. None of these helps the soul, the inner man, to be righteous in God's sight. <clears throat> one thing and one thing only is necessary for our, right, for our, for our righteousness, and that's the gospel of Christ. Paul said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Where the word of God is missing, there is no help for our souls. If we have the word of God, we lack nothing because it is the word of life. It's a word of truth. It's a word of life, light. It's a word of salvation. It's a word of peace. And that's why the psalmist says in 119, he yearns and sighs for the word of God. We see that so many times in Psalm 119. And even Amos said, back in chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, <coughs> says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. Hoy, that's today. There's a famine in the hearing of the word of God. There's no more terrible disaster with which the wrath can God can afflict us than a famine of the hearing of God's word. We know that very few want to listen. We're reminded of that this morning in a prayer meeting as Kathy spoke about her friend Kate. Very few want to listen to God's word, even though they are the words of eternal life. Well, what then is this word? What then is the word of God? And you can't go past Romans chapter 1 he de uh, Paul declares that the, the word is the gospel of God concerning his son who was made flesh, who suffered, who rose from the dead and was glorified through the spirit who sanctifies. To preach Christ is to feed the soul and to make it righteous, to set it free and to save it, provided it believes in the preaching. And Paul clearly states that in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, he says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God <coughs> to salvation. For everyone who believes, there's that word believe, the action word of faith, belief. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed, sorry, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith alone. <coughs> in Romans 10, he reinforces that. He says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart 
that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the word of God cannot be received and loved by any work, whatever, but only by faith. It can only be received by faith. Therefore, once we have this faith, we realise the power of those words, the power in those words for all have sinned and fallen short short of the glory of God. And there is none righteous, no, not one. We've been removed from that. From this we know we need Christ who suffered and rose again that we through faith will become that new person because our sins are forgiven and we are justified by Christ alone, not by anything else. And that's when the Jews said to Jesus in John 6, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus brushed aside their multitude of works that he saw, what they did, and he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. There's that word belief again. Belief. And therefore, I think we are prone to underestimate the power of faith, our second point. We have learned through the commandments to recognise our helplessness since the law must be fulfilled. How often we are distressed that we might satisfy the law otherwise we could be condemned without hope. We find nothing in us that can justify us, that we might be justified and saved. And this is where we see the promises of God taking effect. That is, if we wish to fulfil the law and its demands, we must believe in Christ, in whom grace and righteousness and liberty are promised to us. That which is impossible for us to accomplish by trying to do the works of the law, we will accomplish easily through faith in Christ. God our Father has made us, made all things depend on faith. And so that whatever has faith will have everything. Those who are without faith, the unbeliever, they have absolutely nothing. Since these promises of God are true, holy, righteous and free, we cling to them with a firm faith and feel the power of them through the witness of the Holy Spirit. John reminds us in chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. There's that word believe coming again. Faith, faith in his name. This is how through faith alone, without works, the soul is justified by the word of God. Therefore it is very clear that we all have that need in faith. We need no works to justify us. Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law on our behalf. That's what Christian liberty is all about. However, it doesn't encourage us to live in idleness, weakness, wickedness, but makes law and works unnecessary necessary for our righteousness and salvation. I think there's two things we can see from this. Firstly, believers' faith is reckoned as righteousness. There is no greater way that we show contempt for Christ than to regard him as false and wicked. And we see that so much today. They see Christ as something false and something wicked that goes against their own, their own beliefs or their own actions. Well, then, Therefore, another function of faith is that it honours Christ in whom we trust because we consider him to be truthful and trustworthy. So when we trust firmly in God's promises, we regard Christ as truthful 
and righteous. The very highest form of our worship of God is that we ascribe to him truthfulness and righteousness. These are the promises of God we cling to to see them as true and just and wise. However, our obedience is not rendered by works, <coughs> but by faith alone. Unbelievers who imagine that they are fulfilling the law by doing works of mercy, of self-restraint, and feel they are worthy in God's sight, are not saved. We know plenty of good people, don't we, who do all the right things, but lack belief. They lack belief in God and trust in God. They are included under that sin of unbelief. And they need to seek mercy. Otherwise, they stand condemned forever. Through this faith, we are giving to God what belongs to him. And Paul confirmed this in Romans 4. He says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's that word again, believe. He believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The second thing I see in this, in this too is that believers' faith unites us with Christ as his bride. And Paul, and, and Paul taught the Ephesians uh, this particular wonderful blessing. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And he's talking here about a perfect marriage, since our earthly marriages are but a poor example. As believers, we can glorify glory in whatever Christ had as though it was our own. And what do we have as believers? Christ claims as his own. These wonderful benefits come. Let's make a comparison. Christ is full of grace, life and salvation. We are full of death and sins and damnation. Faith exists between Christ and us. Christ took upon himself our sins, death, damnation, while grace and life and salvation become ours. As a bridegroom, Christ must take upon himself the things which are the bride's and bestow them upon the bride, that bride being the church. And here we have a vision, I believe, not only of a communion, but of a struggle, of victory, salvation and redemption. God is God and man, one person, and has neither sinned nor died and is not condemned, nor can he be. Christ's righteousness, life and salvation are unconquerable eternal and omnipotent. By faith we know that Christ suffered and died and descended into hell that we might overcome them. <clears throat> In this mighty jewel, death and hell could not defeat Christ because his righteousness was greater than our sins. Our life is stronger than death and his salvation is more indestructible than hell. Thus as believers... By faith we are free, free from all sin, secure against death and hell. And we can look forward to that rejoicing we've been studying so far in Revelation. We are furnished with eternal righteousness, life, salvation as the bridegroom of Christ. And Paul says this in Ephesians 5, in verses 26 and 27. He says that he might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he should be holy, that she should be holy, the church, holy and without blemish. So Christ, Christ takes upon himself a glorious, a glorious, sinless bride. 
For thirdly, I believe we can underestimate what is ascribed to faith. <clears throat> what I've said, we can see that much is attributed to faith, that it alone can fulfil the law and justify without works. It's not the doing of works, it is believing, having faith that we glorify and acknowledge God that he is truthful. Therefore, our faith alone is our righteousness. But what am I, <coughs> what am I saying? I'm saying that it is to glorify God. It is not the works or what kind of works are done, but who it is that does them. Works that glorify God are done by faith, which dwells in the heart of the believer and are the source, our source and substance of our righteousness. But this can be a dangerous doctrine if it teaches an unbeliever that he can be saved by good works alone. Because we need to be answered that common question. If faith does all things and alone is sufficient for our righteousness, righteousness, why are good works commanded in Scripture? Why not just take it easy and do no works and be content with faith? I had that put to me by younger people in my younger days so, so long ago. Why not just take it easy and let all things happen? Well, that be, would be correct if we were already perfect spiritual believers, perfectly holy without sin. As long as we live in the flesh, our only, we only begin to make some progress in that which is to be perfected in the future. And that's clearly laid out in Romans 8, where Paul says, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, that's a battle going on, eagerly awaiting the adoption and the redemption of our body. Wow, of course we're waiting for that. In the meantime, we've got a battle. We can't sit back like we've been given some anaesthetic to go to sleep. We're converted to get that anaesthetic or wake up in heaven. We've got to work through this battle. We work through faith. We are still in our mortal bodies. We still need to control those mortal bodies. We still have that inner man who by faith is created in the image of God but is under attack from Satan. Here the works begin as we take care to discipline our bodies and be doing in subjection to the Holy Spirit's guidance that we will obey and conform to our inner man and faith. Sanctification. There's that word coming through. The work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us. That work is ongoing. Let's pray that we can look back in our lives and see where we come from and pray that there's been some improvement as we've worked through our lives, trying uh, obeying God. But, as I said, we meet that contrary will in our flesh, our carnal nature, which strives <coughs> to serve the world. This our spirit cannot tolerate. The Holy Spirit can't, can't tolerate that. But with a joyful zeal, it attempts to put our bodies under control and hold in check. You think, well, wow, we're in this battle. That's something new. No, it's not. Go back a chapter in Romans, to chapter 7. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. We do. We love that. But I see another law in my members, a warning against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. See, Paul was struggling as well as we struggle. He wanted to obey God's law. He wanted to be in obedience to God. But there's another temptation coming through, always warring against that, warring against that members. And he warned us in Galatians, doesn't he? I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall fulfill 
the lust of the flesh. Sorry. <clears throat> Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So the victory is for us. He says, and those who are Christ, sorry, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and his passions and desires. He says that in verse 24. So there is victory there at the end. There is victory in this battle. You know, from time to time, we have questions about our faith, don't we? It is in working through those questions and doubt, doubts that our faith can become stronger and more mature and continue to grow throughout life. As humans, we are, there are many things which God about God that we don't understand. But it is through our faith that we can trust God is the one who answers all our questions and knows what is best. He said to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. We're nowhere near understanding the thoughts of God except what's contained in his word. We don't know how he thinks, but we know that he thinks to his honour and glory. He thinks in omnipotence. He thinks in omniscience. He thinks omnipresence. All those characteristics that, that uh, affect his thoughts. You know, as I said, we just can't lie in heaven in a second, hope that the transfer, transfer, transformation is complete while we're knocked out. God doesn't work that way. I believe God is concerned about what we go through. But I believe he's more concerned about how we respond to what we go through. How do we respond to trials and tests and blessings? Peter tells us that our faith will be tried, refined like pure gold, to build us up, to mature it. So every time we overcome each trial and doubt and test, our strength is our faith is strengthened, and prayerfully that we won't fall to the time that next time that same trial and test comes along. We take him at his word. We don't trust in our feelings. We don't trust in our, our life experiences. We trust in what God's word says to us. Something that I have learnt over many years to get into the habit of taking God at his word. So it becomes a habit. We, we can either grow accustomed to listening to our feelings and thoughts and circumstances and let them control us, or we can be in the habit of taking God at his word despite our feelings and life experiences. We need to choose with regenerated wills to believe that God, his word is truer than our feelings. Often our feelings discourage us. Woe is me. Oh, how could this happen to me? You know, it was a blessing to hear Julie Lawrence say, even though I've had this news, my life is in God's hands. As she faced up to this trial of knowing she's got pancreatic cancer. That's not trusting your feelings. That's trusting in God. You see, faith is vitally important to our lives because it is by faith that we are saved, we are justified, we are cleansed, and we look forward to that return of Jesus. Faith is where we please God. We admit our dependence upon him. 
we continue to seek to reply, uh, rely upon him in grace. So I'd just like to close by asking these questions. What has faith changed in your life? What are faith's evidences in your life? Is faith growing in your life? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the, the wondrous comfort which faith is able to proclaim. We thank you. We thank you for this wonderful victory which is ours in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Preserve and keep us in the midst of our trials. Give us the confidence that our faith will see us through to one being perfectly united with our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. And grant that our hope might be put in him alone. All, th all these things we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat>